We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of Realtree Rebels. I'm Chase Palmer. Today I'm joined by Ben McDonald. Ben has tons of baseball credentials. He was a star pitcher at LSU. He won the Golden Spikes Award, which is essentially college baseball's Heisman Trophy. He was the number one, number one overall pick by the Baltimore Orioles. He won a gold medal with the U.S. Olympic team in 1988. So many different baseball accolades there for Ben. We're going to go over those today, but even more than that, Ben's a great person. He's a great storyteller. He is going to uh, go through a lot of his baseball career. He and I get into a bit of a seamhead conversation just about the state of college baseball right now. There's a lot of stuff coming up on today's show. I really appreciate Ben's time. He's now a TV analyst for the Baltimore Orioles, so he was getting ready for uh, a series against the Washington Nationals here as Baltimore is uh, in the playoffs. They're uh, trying to win the AL East. They're trying to have the best record in the American League, and uh, Ben has been uh, back with them for several years doing that as well. So we're going to get into all that stuff and much more on the podcast. Also, uh, reminder, Realtree.com. Realtree.com, they got tons of different options for you there. You can pick up some hunting supplies, you can pick up outdoor wear, and even some great recipes. I talked about it last week. I put some pictures up on social media of their uh, their venison chili that is incredible. So if you need some desserts, if you need some main courses, got need to know what to do with wild game or whatever protein, Realtree.com there for that. And then, again, they've got a lot of new items out with your favorite patterns there from Realtree. So if you remember Realtree.com, appreciate those guys for uh, letting us do this show, for helping us with this show, and it's bringing you great content like this coming up here with Ben McDonald. So uh, I talked to Ben for a while. You can hear that now on the podcast, all MPW Digital Podcasts presented by Twisted T as well. So here is uh, Ben McDonald talking to me about baseball, his career, and so much more on Realtree Rebels. Ben McDonald now joining us on the show. Ben, thanks for the time. I know you're uh, you're pretty busy. Got the Orioles headed to the playoffs here soon, doing that for your your day job. We're gonna talk a little of that. We're gonna talk some college baseball. A lot of stuff here with you on the show. So I really appreciate it. I know you've known the, the Jordan family for a long time, the real tree guys for a long time. So we'll hit on that too. But I'm gonna start here because I'm, I'm a college baseball guy. I've been co- I've been covering Mike Bianco for two decades. What was the uh, uh. What was the Mike Bianco like in the late 80s, Ben? What's the 1989 version of Mike like? 
Hey, look, always a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, let me say that from the beginning. Mike hasn't changed a whole lot. Like, like Mike, Mike was uber competitive, like I was uh, when he came from junior college in Florida and came to LSU uh, for the '88 and '89 season. He had two years there, which were my last two years at LSU. And so, man, I, I loved Mike. I loved his competitiveness. I knew when we were just kids at 20 years old, 19 years old, that Mike would be a coach one day. I just, I saw that. I mean, a lot of catchers are, you go around the big leagues, a lot of Bob Melvin, a lot of guys that are managing big league clubs right now are former catchers, just because catchers have to know, obviously how to handle a pitching staff. Mike's as good as anybody about doing that, but y'all just got to know all the ins and outs of cutoffs, relays, bunt plays, pickoffs. And Mike was always picking coach Berkman's brain. I could see them two sitting on the bench together, always talking strategy. And I kind of knew at that time, but Mike hadn't changed a whole lot, man. He was one of those guys that would, I mean, he'd wreck his mom would have win a race. If it was a car race, he was one of those kind of guys, you know, he'd drill his mom to win a ball game. You know, that's just kind of how he was. And so I was like that too. So me and Mike got along really well together. Uh, and I still tell people this all the time. Mike is still, and I was fortunate to play at every level there is to play at, uh, the most fun guy, the most competitive guy, and probably the best defensive. I know if he hears this, it's going to hurt his feelings. But, yeah, he could hit, too. Now, he could hit a little bit, too, but he was a better defender uh, than he was. You know, it was defense over offense with Mike, but just a super guy. And I'm so happy for him and what he's accomplished at Ole Miss and how he took that program over that wasn't a very successful program when he took it over and what he's built it into today. That facility they have at Ole Miss there in Oxford is one of the best in the country. Mike's a lot responsible for that. And of course, winning the national championship, long time coming for Mike, but uh, he deserves it, man. He was so close to winning one when we were playing at LSU. Of course, he got to be a part of two or three of them as assistant coach under Skip Bourbon. And to win one of his own, really special for Ole Miss baseball for Mike Bianco. Yeah, when Mike came in, you mentioned it being Juco I mean, way back in the day. I'm going to make you go into the memory bank a little bit. But, you know, certain attitudes and whatever, To, to it seems like, I mean, talking to him, I mean, became a leader on that program, on that team pretty quickly. I mean, a guy that, you know, radiated, like you said, from that standpoint, but, you know, did it with actions too, it seems like, back in the day. No doubt. I mean, Mike came from junior college, you know. And my son played junior college ball. I'm going to tell you what, J.C. kids don't get the credit they deserve. That is, to me – you know, you go to an LSU now and an Ole Miss now and a Florida and some of the bigger programs in the country, everything's taken care of for you in a lot of ways. Mike will tell you the story. When we got to LSU, we were the building blocks of the LSU years of what would later come. And we were responsible for cleaning out the bathrooms, painting the bathrooms, painting the stadium. We were the tarp crew. We did all those things in the late 80s at LSU before LSU was the program that it is now. And so we kind of built it from the ground floor up with Coach Berkman because we were kind of at the beginning years of when he took over at LSU and what would later become a five national titles and what a nine-year span and now seven overall. And so Mike got it from junior college. He got it from Coach Berkman. He learned how to, of course, build a winner uh, and knew what it take to, took to do that. And so uh, I, I'm not shocked. I'm really not shocked he's had the success that he's had. I, I knew that he would have. We know the SEC is the toughest conference in all of college baseball football you can make a case just about an average sport and to do what he's done over at Ole Miss and look I, I love my Ole Miss people but those Ole Miss people were really getting on my last nerve for a while when they were talking about how Mike Bianco needed to be fired and I'm thinking man y'all don't know what y'all have over there yeah it, that season didn't begin the way that that that, that Ole Miss people hoped it would begin, but it certainly ended 
in, in a big way. So I'm happy for Mike, and uh, and hopefully they're going to have a bounce back. They had a little bit of a rough year last year, which is not uncommon when you win a national title. You get a little bit behind on recruiting and other things because you make such a deep run. But I look for Ole Miss to be a much better team this year. Yeah, you, you kind of answered that. That's where I was going to ask you is what was that season kind of like for you, knowing Mike personally and as long as you have and, and caring for he and Cammy and that family? Because, I mean, let's just be honest, he was likely losing his job there if they don't get in, yeah. if they don't go on that last day. I mean, I I spent six months writing the book about it. I mean, they it, it was all over, and they get the break, and he goes on that run. What was it kind of like, though, you watching that month, month and a half there as they, they did catch fire? Well, I, it, it, you know, it hurt me, and I know it hurt Mike and family to hear and read some of the things that were being said. And it hurt me because I've known Mike for so long. I know what kind of person he is. I, I know how much he's invested in Ole Miss and Ole Miss baseball and those rumors. But, look, sometimes you're a victim of your own success. And Mike came in and he set the bar really high at Ole Miss pretty quickly. Like, he started to build a winner pretty quickly. And then, you know, the word that I told Mike this personally before he even won the national championship, I said the worst thing happened to you was when State, the year before, mm-hmm. State won the national title, mm-hmm. right? And that even puts more pressure on you, right? When when when, when you're a team in your own state wins it, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on you. And, and Mississippi State won theirs, and so they amped it up for Mike. And they were ranked, I think, number one or really high at the beginning of the year and end of the season, all of a sudden things started to slip a little bit, you know. But like Mike does in so many ways and like a good coach does, he kind of rallied the troops. It took a while to figure out that pitching staff, you know. And Lucia got hot and some of the other guys got hot and all of a sudden they made that incredible run. And, look, I had them in the uh, I had them in the Super Regionals against Southern Miss. And I'm going to tell you what, it was – and I had them early in the year that year when they were struggling a little bit. And it looked like two totally different teams to me. Like the body language was different. They had the roles kind of figured out in the bullpen. They had to start rotation roles figured out. Some of those veteran guys had really started to step up and play really well. And it looked like two different teams. And then, and look, Southern Miss had a really good team that year. And they came into Hattiesburg, and I had that super with Dave Neal. And Ole Miss didn't miss a beat, man. They, and I said, uh-oh, uh-oh, they got a real shot. Because it's almost like, in some ways, there's always pressure to perform and win, but in some ways it felt like Ole Miss kind of just snuck in on the radar and they were kind of playing with house money. And sometimes when you're playing with house money, you become very, very dangerous. And Ole Miss got on this. And I always tell people, you know, the College World Series is not always won by the best team. Matter of fact, very rarely is it won by the best team. I mean, when's the last time the number one overall seed won the World Series? I think it was the first year we went to a, this this 64-team field. Uh, my, the Miami Hurricanes did it many years ago. And since then, nobody's done it. And so – it's difficult to do, and, and Ole Miss got hot at the right time, and that's what we saw from Ole Miss. What are your impressions of just the college game right now? And we've had a couple of years of portal and NIL and all this stuff going on. And then, you know, in addition to the game just felt different last year, man. I mean, you talk about, you know, you look at it, walks are up. It was harder to pitch. I think, you know, even LSU, mm-hmm. you take skeins out of it, and their team ERA was like an eight and a half or a nine there yeah. at one point. I think yeah. – you know, I think umpires and getting their real-time data from track, man. It, you know, I, I, Mike and I talked about this at one point during the season that I think there's the argument it was harder to pitch in a way in college baseball this past year than maybe even the pros because it's as tight side to side, but you're not getting the high strike like you do sometimes in MLB. Yeah. They weren't giving that up there. You're kind of 10 canning this. What do you sort of just see from the way the game is played right now? It's a different game right now, no doubt. And the worst thing that happened to our game, the college game, is when umpires started being graded and judged. And now they felt like they had to shrink their strikes on it. What's always been a strike in major or in, in college baseball all of a sudden wasn't a strike anymore. And the reason why we've always had 
a little bit bigger strike zone in college ball is simply because college pitchers aren't as good as pro pitchers, and that's why we've always had that zone. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you shrink that zone to what it was, and I called it a triple-A zone. That's what it looked like to me when I was watching this year. Like, it, it got out of control for me, and you factor in this equipment now, and I don't have any proof of this, but the balls this past year, and it really started the previous season and the postseason, the balls all of a sudden started flying further and I don't know if it was the balls or the bats or a combination of the two, but you couple a smaller strike zone with older players because we still had the COVID players mixed in there. And all, you know, you still got some 22, 23, mm-hmm. 24-year-old kids swinging an aluminum bat playing college ball. You factor in those three things of older players, a ball is flying a little bit further with a smaller strike zone, and that's why you saw the offense do what it did this year. And I would agree with you. I think it's it was one of the toughest times to pitch in college baseball baseball that we've seen in a very long time. So the game was difficult. You couldn't really – I mean, look, I, I watch certain pitch like Brandon Sproat from Florida pitch and others that – I look at these arms and I see the velocity and the break of the breaking ball, and I'm going, how does that kid have a 4-7 ERA with what – I mean, 97 mm-hmm. mile-an-hour fastball with a breaking ball and a split-finger fastball, and your ERA is 4-7. And so I knew at that point that something was wrong. Now, you mentioned Paul Skeens. It made kind of what Paul Skeens did – even more remarkable mm-hmm. to have the numbers that he did right in an era where everybody else's DRA went up and yet his came down from the year before when he was at air force. So it made him even that much more impressive, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. I did not like where the game was. I felt like there was too much offense in the game. It felt like almost in the time when me and Mike Bianco were playing where, and nothing against the five foot seven, 160 pound guy, but, if you're five seven one six, you're not supposed to hit a ball out to the opposite field into the wind, and that's what I saw happen a lot this year. You know, I really felt like the college game was in its most fairest place. I felt like about three or four years ago, I felt like they finally got it right. They lowered the seams on the baseball. The ball flew just enough of a big guy. You made a mistake, and a big guy got a hold of it. It went for a homer like it was supposed to. I felt like we lost that. Um, I'll be honest, and I'm probably not going to make a whole lot of fans from saying this. I am not a fan of college sports right now and the transfer portal. I mm-hmm. Now, I am okay with players getting paid um, to, to do so. I think it probably needs to be a cap on it right now. Because, look, the NCAA has always been about fairness in our game. We want it to be equal for everybody. It's got to be fair. Well, listen, as far as I'm concerned, it is the furthest thing away from fair that I've ever seen any of the college game right now. Like, it's mm-hmm. not – I mean, the, the, it's become the haves and the have-nots. If you got money and you got NL money, you're going to be able to get top recruits in. And, and I feel bad for the, for the you know, non-Power 5 conferences right now, if there are Power 5 conferences anymore with all this changing. But it's like the, the, the lesser programs have all of a sudden become feeder programs for the big programs that are out there. You go out, you recruit a kid that nobody else really wanted. He's a late bloomer. You coach him up. He has a great year. Guess what? He ends up at a power five school somewhere. I don't like that part of it at all, you know? And so to me, and I feel bad. Look, and I told Mike this, and you probably had this conversation with him too. I think it's also the most difficult time to be a college coach right now too, because not only are you trying to go out and be active in the transfer portal, and you have to be in today's world if you're going to be competitive, you're also trying to recruit your own players that you have on campus right now, because you might not be able to coach them up like you want to, and really get in their rear ends and tell them what's good for them and really be honest with them because you may piss them off and they end up going taking their ball and they Mm -hmm. go somewhere to another program. And so that scares me for the coaches that are out there right now. And so 
I don't like that part of it, to be honest. There's nothing wrong with competition. And I feel like in today's world, we have gotten away from competing. Uh, you know, and I keep, I don't want to be the old guy to keep saying, well, in my time, but just go back a few years ago. I remember Tyran Matthew at LSU didn't get to start his freshman year, but he said, you know what? The best thing for me was I set the bench and I learned what it took to be successful in college football. I watched some all Americans in front of me because I wasn't good enough to play. There's nothing wrong with kids competing and having to sit for a year to learn, to work harder, to get better. And I feel like some of that is lost, not all of it, but I feel like some of that is lost in today's game where a kid comes out of high school and he's all everything like most of them are. And also they get to campus and, wow, I, okay, I'm not good enough. This is not what I signed up for. You know what? I'm just going to transfer to the next place where I can play shortstop and I can bat third instead of saying, hey, you know what? Coach Bianco told me I'm not good enough to play. I'm going to look in the mirror. He's probably right. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bust my butt like Michael Jordan did when Michael Jordan was cut from his 10th grade basketball team. He didn't think about transferring. He went out and he worked his tail off that summer, and he came back and he made his high school basketball team the next year. Like Shaquille O'Neal was cut from his high school team because he wasn't good enough, but it motivated him to be the best. And we see two of the best players to ever lace up a pair of sneakers and those two guys. And so I, I feel like some of that is lost in today's game. And so if I was the NCAA, I would fix that part. Now, there are special occasions, exceptions, right? If your coach that you go, Mike Bianco decides to retire, okay, I'm okay with you transferring. I'm okay with the Joe Burrows of the world who graduated from Ohio State and still have years of eligibility left. I'm okay with that guy transferring too. But I am not for the kid that signed up to go to Tennessee and all of a sudden he got there and he's just not good enough and now he wants to take his ball and go somewhere else. I don't, I don't like that piece of our game at all. Yeah, we're not seeing anywhere near as, you know, I guess an exaggerated one, but, you know, Till Moko barely played for two years. He wasn't very good. You know, he came in, Tyler Keenan took his spot. He was a big-time recruit, but he couldn't get on the field, and you see him kind of just stay with it and stay with it. And he was he was going to have a hell of a year in the COVID year before they before they had a chance. Sure. But, I mean, it did. It took a minute to kind of get there. I mean, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Because, look, this is a tough game, and you know this. College sports are tough, man. High school sports are tough. It's not always going to be your way, especially this game of baseball. It is just simply built on failure. And you get to these big schools, man, and you think you're all everything. And you are in some ways, but sometimes you got to take two steps back in order to go forward again. And so I love the Elko story and other stories that are like that. I mean, those are the kids that kept saying, you know what, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to figure this out because that's what life is about. Life is about figuring stuff out, man, and working hard, not just in sports and life in general. And so those kids that learn how to work and can accept it failure and do something about it and become better, those are the kind of kids that will grow up to be young men that will be successful in whatever they decide to do. I can stay on this conversation all day, so I'm going to move on. Before I do that, though, you know, what's funny about the you, – you mentioned the College World Series and where the game is today – Omaha, for years, you know, since they moved into TD Ameritrade, or I guess Charles Schwab now, was, hey, it's this huge place. You can't hit the ball out of here, and it changes the game, and it's different. It's not now. It actually looks like real baseball because of the things that have happened everywhere else. You know, I look at the College World Series the last couple of years, and you can hit home runs to all parts of the field now. You can do these sure. things. You know, Brady Slavens hit the ball 440 against Ole Miss a couple of years ago. It's it's almost like Hoover in Omaha has made the game more normal than our actual regular season because of the size of the yeah. ballpark. I would agree. And, and, you know, and I think TD Ameritrade was built, you know, Omaha was built back when we had the hot bats and it was put into play because that they mm -hmm. felt like they were doing. And all of a sudden we changed the bats and all of a sudden it was just no offense in the game at all. And in the NCAA, I felt like they got it right. They went to a smaller ball and the ball started hopping. And I think it's, I think it's a fair ballpark. And look, 
when the wind blows out in Omaha, look, it, the ball really gets out of there. When it blows in hard, it is hard mm-hmm. to hit it out no matter. But we saw Wyatt Langford go all the way up on the concourse this year. You know, we've seen other guys go way up there before. So it's gettable for sure. And I think it's a it's more of a fair ballpark what we see in Hoover, Alabama, and, of course, what we see there. But, but again, a lot of these new college parks that are out there were built on the BB Corbat system and said, okay, we, and there's been a lot of schools that brought their fences in, you know, five, six, seven years ago when there was no offense. And now that the offense is starting to come back, now the ballparks in some ways aren't playing as fair as what they really should be. Did you give any consideration or much consideration when you were drafted by the Braves? Or was it always going to be college and, and, and what was going on? No, I did. I mean, look, I grew up a National League fan because when I was a kid, I mean, we didn't get cable vision until I was in 10th grade. And once we got cable vision, all I ever grew up watching was TBS and WGN. So I was a big National League fan. I mean, Dale Murphy was one of my favorite guys ever. You know, I mean, I grew up with Horner and Murphy, Bedrosian and those guys, you know, and of course, with the Cubs, there was Sutcliffe and Ron Say and Andre Dawson. The Hawk was out there, you know, and so I grew up with all those Jody Davis was catching, man. So I was a National League guy. And then I got drafted by the Braves, man, and I was amped up. I really was. Because I kept telling them, no, I don't I don't want to go. I, I'm not ready. I'll tell you a quick story. You know, they ended up drafting me in the 21st round because I told Bobby Cox, who was a GM at the time, I said, I said Mr. Bobby, I said, listen, I want to go to LSU, and I want to play basketball, and I want to play baseball. That's what I want to do, you know. And he said, well, we're going to draft you, son. And I was like, well, I'm just letting you know I, I want to go to LSU. So – I remember getting drafted by him in the 21st round, and Bobby Cox comes down, and he's watching me pitch in some Babe Ruth tournament in St. Francisville, Louisiana, a little bitty town, about 5,000. <laughs> he shows up out in the middle of it. you got to walk, walk around the, the cow pies to get to the ballpark, you know, one of them kind of places. And uh, and Bobby Cox tells my dad, they start offering me more and more money, and they got $75,000. And at the time, in 1986, my senior year in high school, $75,000 was second-round money. And I remember when Bobby Cox walked off and said, we're not done with you yet, son. Uh, I remember my dad looked at me and said, son, if they get to $100,000, your butt's going to sign. Because that was first, that was back in first-round money in 86. I was like, dad, but dad, I, I, I'm 18 years old. I don't. I want to go to LSU. I want to play basketball, and I want to play baseball. And thank gosh the Braves never got to 100. They stopped at $75,000. I, I might have been a Brave. But, you know, you often wonder because, I mean, that would have put me in a rotation with Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, Avery, and maybe mm-hmm. McDonald. You know, so you often wonder, you know, what if that would have happened. But I always tell people, man, I got a chance to play in two college World series. I got a chance to – play in the Elite Eight in basketball with Dell Brown's basketball team. I got to play in the Olympics and won a gold medal. Uh, I got to do all these wonderful things. And so it's it's weird how your life could take you in different directions. And while I sometimes think about what might have been, I also think what did happen and thankful for the opportunities that I got to go to LSU and experience the college game uh, and, and wear the red, white, and blue and win a gold medal. Like that doesn't – nothing else compares to that, you know. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any hard beverage you've had before. It's made of real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol, no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up any occasion. 
especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. So whether you're tailgating at the stadium, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you're at your best, you can do great things, but sometimes life gets you bogged down and you may feel overwhelmed or like you're not showing up the way you want to. Working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you because when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. Therapy can help clear your thoughts, and it's great to talk to somebody that doesn't have a lot of preconceived notions. Sure, you got family, you got friends, but maybe they have opinions or emotions that are not exactly what you need right now. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MPW today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M-P-W. What was your recruitment like? Was it a baseball recruitment with basketball thrown in? Was it pretty dual? I mean, what, what, what did that look like back in the day? Believe it or not, it was more heavily – I was more heavily recruited out of high school to play basketball than I was baseball. Now, every school was going to give me the opportunity to play baseball too, but uh, basketball, I don't know, man. I just loved the game of basketball growing up. Like, mm-hmm. it was really my first love. I loved to grow up. I was probably one of these ADD kids before there was ADD diagnosis, right? I mean, I just like to get up and down the court and run, and I was really good it playing basketball I was a good shooter and loved the game and worked hard at it, you know? Uh, but then I got over to LSU my freshman year and, um, and we went to the elite eight my freshman year and I loved basketball. And then I go to the Alaskan summer league that summer after my freshman year and the fastball ticked up to 97. And then at that point I said, okay, now this might change things a little bit because I can always throw strikes. And now all of a sudden the velo started to come with it. I went, okay, Baseball, Mike, because 97 today doesn't mean a whole lot, but 97 back in 1987 was hard. And um, matter of fact, there was only a handful of guys that could do it, you know. And so I kind of knew at that point that baseball was probably going to be my future at that point. So you weren't 100% that that was the future out of high school. I mean, it was possible. I mean, basketball was going to be, yeah, I mean, it was still – 100%. 100%. And, I, and that's what everybody kept telling me. Go play both. One of them will eventually win out. And to this day, Dale Brown, who was the basketball coach at LSU, and I went there and told him, Coach, I'm going to walk away as much as I hate to from basketball. He looked me in the eye and said, Son, I think you're making a big mistake. He said, I think you can play in the NBA. And I said, Coach, maybe so, but I, my fastball just ticked up to 97 this past summer, and, and they're telling me I got a chance to be a first-round pick. And they're also telling me that if I spend a full year, because see what happened my freshman year at LSU, we go to the Elite Eight in basketball. And so I, March Madness took me, I missed all the first two months of the college baseball season. I didn't get out to baseball until we were already in conference play. And I got thinking to myself, okay, if I want to make this Olympic team my sophomore year, I got to be out for a full year. I got to show the country what I'm capable of doing, and I need to be there for the full year. And so that was a lot of the thought process behind it is, wanting to make that Olympic team and knowing I had to be out there a full year to do it. Did you throw during basketball season on your own? I mean, you know, football, mm. baseball is one thing, but basketball, baseball running into each other. I mean, what did what yeah. did that time management look like on how you did fit in some baseball? No, it did. I, you know, the one blessing that I had is obviously pitching your legs are one of the most important things you have. And nobody was in better shape 
on the baseball field after because of basketball season because of me because all we did was get up and down the court. So I, my endurance and my legs were in terrific shape. I just had to get the arm in shape. And, yeah, to answer your question, so uh, about January, right around Christmas, January, I'd pick up a baseball. i do it inside the Assembly Center at the PMAC now. Uh, soon to be probably called the multi center if she keeps winning like she's gonna win. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, or it might be the P Mac multi, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. but yeah, I was I would bring my glove and a ball and I would play catch and Coach Bergman would send over one of the catchers and we would start play, play catch at the basketball court and I would start throwing about every two or three days, start to get my arm in shape. And so by the time uh February would roll around and they would begin baseball games, my arm was pretty much ready to go. I just had to get a few bullpen bullpen outings to be ready to go so that was it a timeline situation or i mean the year before what what made the olympics such a thing in your mind from that early what what did you kind of know or understand or hear that hey this is something to shoot for well i was always a big olympian like growing up man i, I grew up watching carl lewis and edwin moses and I, I loved the olympics like i would not miss anything with the summer olympics i loved it as a kid growing up and i often wondered man how cool would that be to stand on a gold medal platform and have somebody drape a gold medal over your neck? And from the time I was eight years old, it was like, man, that's got to be like the coolest thing in the world mm -hmm. to wear the red, white, and blue, be on foreign soil and get that gold medal. And so when that opportunity started to arise and, and Coach Burton, the baseball coach, he always said, Ben, you got a, you've got a real shot of being on this Olympic team in 1988, but I don't know that you can do it if you, if you miss half the baseball season again, you know, and uh, I'll tell you another quick story. I went and told Dale Brown that story that I just told you. I said, coach, I'm not going to come out for my sophomore year. I'm going to play baseball. And he said, well, I think you're making a mistake or whatever, whatever. Well, rock along about a month and a half, the entire basketball team came down with mono. They didn't even have enough players to practice. So Dale Brown called me up. It's like October. And he goes, Ben, can you come out and play basketball? The whole team's got – I don't have enough team players to practice. I said, Coach, here's what I'm going to do. Because he kept me on scholarship. He said, Ben, I'm going to keep you on basketball scholarship, even though you're not going to play, but I think you might be back. I was like, Coach, I can't promise you anything. But anyway, I said, I'll come back out, and I will play basketball October, November, December. But when January 1 rolls around of my sophomore year, Coach, I got to go. He said, if you do that, I'll love you forever because that'll give me enough players. And so I went and got my legs in great shape, lifted with those guys, got to play a little bit. And when January 1 rolled around, I went straight out to, ba to baseball. And as they say, the rest is history. I make the Olympic team. We win the gold medal. Then, of course, I become the number one draft pick the following year uh, out of LSU. So what was it like to stand on that podium? Gives me chills today. You know, people say, well, you accomplished a lot. And I said, yeah, I mean, look, being the first pick is really cool. Pitching the big leagues is really cool. But what's your favorite moment? If I say it is 100 percent my favorite moment. And there's a lot of favorite moments. But that one, standing on that gold medal platform and having them put a gold medal over your neck ranks above everything else I was able, lucky enough to, to accomplish, you know. And it was so cool because it was different then than what it is now. Now the, the USA tour is a couple weeks, two or three weeks. We did it, man, for two and a half months. Like we went to Japan twice. We went to Italy and played. We went to uh, Korea and played uh, where the Olympics were. We would, we took a tour around the U.S. It was a two-and-a-half-month, and it really got you ready for Pro Bowl in some ways because a lot of bus trips, long plane flights. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. So it was very rewarding with a bunch of really cool dudes to be able to go out and represent uh, the red, white, and blue and, and do those things. So that ranks up there at the top of my list with anything.
Where's your metal at? It's at my house, matted in a frame with my USA jersey. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's sitting right there, you know, for everybody to see. And I'll take it out and go talk to some <laughs> local kids every now and then when they get on the Olympics. We have Olympic year. I'll take it out and bring it to them, you know. And so, but I still look at it and I remember everything about it. I remember that summer. I remember pitching in, in Korea in those mounds where there weren't no mounds. It's just a rubber on the dirt. If they didn't, they don't believe in elevated mounds there. So I remember my mom and dad getting to go and coming to Korea and watching us uh, play in the Olympics. And so, just a really cool moment. You mentioned getting drafted number one, and you end up getting up like two weeks later. I mean, it's I know it happens some, but it's not very common at all. I think John Olerud beat you by a few days. Mm. So you weren't the you weren't the right. first guy out of that uh, out of that class to get up though. You you were on, you on a race there. You actually lost. Right, that's right. Yeah, John Olerud was a hell of a player. Yeah, and and you know I I felt like I had a chance to be a quick riser. Not that I was ready to be there because I had thrown so much at LSU and negotiations got off to a a very slow start because of that. Cause Orioles made it clear right away. They said, listen, you've thrown 152 innings this year and 352 in the last 16 months. And we're in no hurry to sign you. You need to rest anyway. And so I didn't touch a baseball for a long while. And finally, I think the draft was in June, early June. And we finally got signed on August the 19th. And I got signed and made two quick starts in the minor leagues. And September 1st, I was in the big leagues. Uh, wasn't ready to be there uh, from a physical standpoint. Um, but they were in the middle of a pennant race. So I just got some kind of mop up duties out of the bullpen. It was good for me to kind of get my feet wet and see what the pro ball is all about and see what the big leagues is all about. And I'd be ready to go, uh, the next year, you know, and, and begin my really begin my pro career, you know? And so that was really cool. It was, uh, man, when you're 21 years old and, and you go from college baseball into a grown man's world, because that's what it is. And all of a sudden you're facing the best hitters in the world. It's difficult. And you got to call your own game. And that was my biggest because Skip Bertman, like Mike Bianco does, Skip Bertman called every pitch I ever threw. Like every pitch and, yeah, curveball, I got one of those. Fastball there, I can throw it there. Yeah, I got a forkball too. I could do it, but I never really thought about what he was trying to accomplish. And then all of a sudden, rock along two months later, I'm in the big leagues facing Corey Schneider and Kirby Puckett and Paul Molitor and Joe Carter. And Dave Winfield, and I got to get these guys out. And now all of a sudden, I don't know how to use the stuff that I have. And so there was a curve in there for me to kind of, I had to, there were some tough nights, man. There were some nights where I went home and banged my head up against the wall and cried and had a really difficult time trying to figure this thing out before the light bulb started to flicker a little bit. And it was Cal Ripken Jr. You may know the story, but Cal Ripken Jr., the, the Iron Man came to, and Chris Hoyles was a young catcher. He was just a couple years older than me. And I got through pitching one game, and he sticks his head in there, and we're having a beer. Me and Chris Hall's just shaking our heads trying to figure out what's going on. And he looked in there, and he goes, you boys don't have a clue of what you're doing, do you? I, I, I said, no, sir, Mr. Ripken. I have not a damn clue what I'm doing. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. And he said, well, it's pretty obvious. And so he sits down, and he comes up with this idea. He grabs a beer, and he sits down with us, and he goes, here's what we're going to do. This is going to stay in this triangle between me – Chris Hoyles, and you. Nobody else is going to know about it. Nobody. If the manager finds out about it or the pitching coach finds out about it, he said, I'm out. Yes, sir, Mr. Ripken. So from that point forward, this was in night. This was my second year in the big leagues. He called every pitch I threw that year from the shortstop position. And it was funny because I'd be looking in on my glove. And I'm looking at Chris Hoyles at home plate, and I can see Chris's eyes. Chris's eyes aren't focused on my eyes, given he's looking over my right shoulder 
where Cal Ripken Jr. is standing. And the way Jr. held his glove at his hip down here and where he touched on his chest was the pitch and the location. Nobody ever picked it up except us. And so Chris Hoyles, the catcher, would get the sign from Ripken, and then he'd put the fingers down, and I would throw that pitch. And then after every game, me and Chris and Cal Ripken would sit down, and we would over a six-pack of beer, which they don't do anymore, I don't think, uh, and we would talk about hitters and why we threw this pitch in this situation, why we pitched this guy differently with a runner in scoring position. I never thought about those things because he used to tell me, okay, Paul Molitor's going to look for the ball out over the plate with runners in scoring position because he wants to hit the ball to right field to score the run. But with nobody on, you can get him out on the inside. I went, oh, my gosh, these hitters are that good. So they really swing and they hit differently and think differently depending on what the situation is. And he said, absolutely. And so that was my learning curve in the big leagues for a full year. Cal Ripken Jr. called every pitch I ever threw, and we sat down after every start and we talked about why. And then one year, rock along the next year of spring training, he goes, you guys got it now. You guys have it figured out. I'm right here behind you. If you ever need me, call timeout, bring me in. I'll let you have it. And so that really sped up my learning process at the big league level. But it took somebody like Cal Ripken Jr. And then, of course, the following year, my old buddy who stood in my wedding, Rick Sutcliffe, who was a, uh, a Cy Young award-winning pitcher mm-hmm. with the Cubs, he comes to the Orioles for a year. And that kind of put me – I mean, you, you never learn it all, but Sut was somebody that I could relate to because in his prime, he was a hard thrower. He was six seven like me. He had mechanical issues. He taught me how to be a professional both on and off the field. And so those are probably the two most important guys in my baseball career uh, that helped me grow up a lot at a young age. I was going to ask you many times you shook off Skip Bertman, but shaking off Cal Ripken feels even more uh, inappropriate than that, doesn't it, man? I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. probably not shaking off Ripken too much. No, I, I didn't. Not, not, not during that time, you know. And, and But he also would – you know, he was very honest with me and said, listen, I may call a pitch from what I've seen, but if you don't have confidence to throw that pitch, I do not want you to throw it. Because if you don't have the confidence to throw the pitch I want you to throw, then it's not going to be a good pitch anyway. So you, even though it might be the wrong pitch, you go ahead and throw your pitch, you know. And that's what I learned about pitches. Pitching is just if – you, if you have a guy set up, it allows you to get away with more mistakes. In other words, I can tell you what pitch is coming, but if I throw a perfect curveball – down and away on the outside part. But I may tell you, hey, curveball's coming. But if I throw that curveball perfectly, you're probably not going to get a base hit anyway, right? So mm-hmm. it became about execution. So I never really questioned pitch selection as much as I questioned pitch location because if you throw the ball where you're trying to throw the ball, a lot of times you'll have success no matter what the pitch calling is. Does that speak to Ripken's competitive level? Hey, we got to win for that you. I mean, what, what, what do you attribute his involvement to that level with? I think several things went on. I think, one, he saw a lot of me and himself. He came from a very small town in the big leagues uh, at a very young age with a lot of pressure to perform. And I think he saw that in me and realized that that I needed help. I needed help, and I had a lot of expectations, a lot on my shoulders, and it was really weighing on me. I think so as a friendship, I think it was more than anything. Also, I think it speaks to his – competitiveness and it speaks to his being a student of the game he was one of those guys that that watched every hitter how every hitter swung who was the fast guys who were the slow guys who cheated on a 2-0 fastball who set back on breaking ball so he knew every hitter used to drive me crazy because he knew the speed 
they'd hit a two hopper to him every time. It didn't matter if it was Kenny Lofton, Ricky Henderson running, or Cesar Fielder running. He would always beat them by a half step over the first base when he'd throw the ball over. I'd be like, just get rid of it, would you? He'd go, I know how fast they are. He'd beat them by. It was that fast every time. Bam, bam, every time. I was like, but never once did they ever beat it out. But he knew the speed of every person, you know. So I think it was all those things that made him. I, he used to amaze me before there was even shifts. You know, I'd throw a ball, and the ball would go by me on my on my right-hand side. and go, damn, that's a base hit. There's Junior in the hole. He's sitting in the hole, just catch it. Throw the guy at first base. I'll go, what are you doing over there? And he goes, you just keep throwing the ball to where you're supposed to throw the ball, and I'll be in the right spot. So he was just one of those thinkers of the game. They knew where guys were going to hit the ball. If And he used to always say, you make your pitches, you throw the ball to where the ball is supposed to be thrown, and I will be in the right spot. And this was a guy that was six foot five, 235-pound shortstop. He was really the first big shortstop that we saw come out and play. And, I mean, in analytics back then, obviously, were not even a tenth of what they are now. So, I mean, you had to have those type of inherent understandings of what your eyes were showing you to get to, to understand those things. No doubt, and that's where the difference in, in really today's ball player. There are some guys like Ripken out there now, but a lot of it's on our it's on our keypad, right? It's on our mm-hmm. watch, or it's on our back pocket where we're going to you know where we're going to set up for every hitter where they like to hit the ball. Whereas guys back then had to have a memory of where guys like to hit the ball and understanding of being able to read a bat and what a guy's trying to do, you know. And so he was just so far ahead of his time as far as that went. Most people say really random ones when I ask them this question. Zach Cozart named three or four really random people I would never guess. Who was – is there any guy that necessarily just had your number that shocked you when you played and went a hitter that, you know, you wouldn't think of and go, hey, just every time I, I didn't see it, I couldn't get him? Man, I get asked that every now and then. Uh-oh. And these were really good players, obviously. Ricky Henderson, Hall of Famer, hit mm-hmm. me well. Joe Carter hit me well. A name that hit me well that you probably never – Dave Valley used to be the catcher for the uh, Seattle Mariners, and Dave Valley was a backup catcher. But for whatever reason, I bet Dave Valley was 8 for 12 off of me career. Like, I could, couldn't get him out. I couldn't make a good pitch to him. He hit me well, you know. And uh, I got a Ricky – Ricky Henderson, you know, I I was about my third year in the big leagues, you know, I was starting to stick my chest out a little bit, you know, and I was having a good game against Oakland. That's when they had Canseco, McGuire – Henderson, Baines, just a team full of all-stars, you know, and and uh, they were a scary lineup to pitch against, but we were winning seven to two or three, and it was like the sixth or the seventh inning, and Ricky came to play, and Ricky was hitting me good. Like, he had two doubles, I said, that's it. I've had enough of this Ricky Henderson guy. I've got my chest stuck out. I'm 23 years old now. I said, I'm fixing to buzz the tower. I'm going to show Ricky who I am. So I take 97, and I just buzz it, like, right up by his chin. And boy, he flips off. Lays back, the helmet comes flying off. He's laying on his back in the batter's box. And I went, ha, got you now, you know. So I said, all right, I'm going to – Bob Melvin was catching. I said, put a curveball down. I said, I got, I'm going to fix him to buckle his knees and embarrass him. So I threw him a curveball. I don't think it's landed yet. Like, I hung it, and it's probably still going out there in Oakland somewhere. Like, he hit it all the way to San Francisco, you know. And so Bob Melvin gets the ball from the umpire, and he comes walking out to me. He said, listen. He said, that's pretty good to do on most hitters, but don't wake Ricky up. Ricky's one of those guys you just don't want to wake up. I went, now you tell me. Yeah, now yeah, you yeah. tell me. It's a little bit late, Bobby. So, well, lesson learned. Don't wake Ricky up. I try not to wake Ricky up ever again, you know. But I thought I was intimidating him, but that didn't go too well. It worked on some, but not on Ricky. <laughs> you know, you, you shut out the White Sox in your first ever start. You probably thought, oh, this ain't nothing to this. No big deal. We got, we got, we got this all the way through, right? All good? 
I'll tell people all the time it was all downhill from there. I think I threw like 85 pitches through a complete game shutout. Uh, my very first big league start in Old Memorial Stadium, it was downhill from there, you know. But, yeah, I mean, look, I was – I only think I struck out four or five, didn't walk but one, but strike thrower threw a lot of strikes. They just kept putting balls in play, you know. And, yeah, I mean, sometimes with big leagues – I mean, and you know this, any sports you play, when you're in a groove, sometimes it feels easy and it is easy. Other times there's struggles, and that's what this game is about, man. There's ups and downs and roller coaster rides along the way, and it goes for your career too, you know, and so – at the end of the day, it's about trying to stay healthy and working your tail off and trying to be as consistent as you can. By the time the Orioles get down with the playoffs, you're going to be pushing 100 games, probably doing uh, doing radio or doing TV, sorry, doing analyst work there for uh, for Baltimore. What made you mm-hmm. want to get back in, in into it to that level? What was appealing about the day-to-day of that, that gig? Um, You know, I didn't set out to do it, man. I, I – um, I didn't even graduate from LSU. Like I got in three years. I was in broadcasting, just kind of getting into it. And, uh, and and when pro ball came and calling, I never went back to school. And, you know, I was coaching my kids after I, I retired. I retired at a very early age. I was retired at 29 years old, had nine years in the big leagues, but I, my shoulder blew up on me and I had three surgeries that didn't work. And that's a different story. But uh, I was coaching the kids at home and I was sitting at an LSU game one day and Skip Burton, he said, you know what you'd be good at? And I was like, what's that coach? He goes, you'd be great on TV doing baseball a- analyst work. I was like, coach, I-, I don't know nothing about TV and all that kind of stuff. He said, I'm going to make a phone call. And that's when this was back in like 1999 or 2000 when, when the only thing college baseball we had was CST and Baton Rouge. We had top sports television. Mm-hmm. LSU was on like 12 times a year. So he made a phone call and I started off doing that and I got my feet wet doing that. I wouldn't I wouldn't even keep in a score. I mean this is look, this is some of my notes I'm getting ready for for tomorrow night the national all my scorecard. I got everything yeah. written in the pictures. I mean I'm I'm detailed now man. I got it all written in but I didn't keep scored in, you know. And so I did that for a couple of years and started keeping scored and ESPN called. I did a super regional and one thing led to another and all of a sudden this thing called the SEC Network got started, and that's when it really took off. And, you know, been doing the College World Series for about five or six years now. And then the Orioles called about, I guess, 12 years ago. I started doing Orioles stuff again. And so, yeah, one thing just kind of led to the other. And, and I really enjoy being a part of it. I, I don't necessarily enjoy all the travel and being away from home. But, man, when the umpire says play ball, like I'm all in. Like I enjoy – the college game. I, my, I tell you, my favorite thing is to see some of these kids in the SEC and around the country playing college ball. And all of a sudden, there's a Heston Kerstad who played at Arkansas, who's now in the big leagues right now with the Baltimore the Orioles. There's Jordan Westberg, who played at Mississippi State about four years ago. He's in the big leagues with the Orioles right now. I enjoy seeing the kids in college when they're 18 to 21 years old. Then all of a sudden, I bump into them at the big league level when they're playing for the Dodgers or whoever they're playing for. So that's fun for me to remember those kids and see them succeed and, and come up through this. But I enjoy doing it, man. I, I uh, Like I said, I don't enjoy the travel, but I enjoy the seeing the best players in the world play at the big league level. Um, my Orioles have not been very good until the last two years. It's been a struggle to do Oriole games, to be honest with you, because, I mean, look, man, we, we lost 110 games two years ago. Uh, rebuilding and trying to get through this process. And last year, all of a sudden, they jump up and they win 82 games, you know, 83 games. You go, oh, okay, above 500. It's a good year. Now, this year, man, we're 
we're hanging on. We got six games left. We got a two and a half game lead over the Tampa Bay Rays right now in the, in the East Division of uh, we're the best team in the American League since the All Star break. You know, best record. And so, what I'm hoping for, because I know you're a Braves fan, and a lot of my real tree folks are Braves people, I am hoping for a Baltimore Orioles Atlanta Braves World Series. That that would be fun. We came to Atlanta. The Orioles came to Atlanta, and I came to Atlanta. It must have been late April, early May. And the Braves beat us two out of three, like they've beaten a lot of people two out of three. It was a hell yes, of a series, really though. Good games. It yeah. was a good series, and the, the Orioles are young and dangerous. I call them. It's a very young team, but they're hungry to win. And the Braves, to me, are the best team because I got a chance to see them. Obviously, uh, see them on TV a little bit, but I got to see them in person. That to me is the best team in baseball. It's it's not even close with what they can do offensively, the pitching, the defense. It, the Braves are the best team now. Does the best team always win? We will see his no, playoffs no. approach. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. When it comes to options, honestly, more is more. That's why HelloFresh's menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every single week. HelloFresh takes the stress out of mealtime by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your doorstep. This fall, skip that extra trip to the grocery store and have dinner ready in no time with America's number one meal kit. The new season calls for new meals, and HelloFresh has a fresh fall lineup of delicious dinners and more to choose from. Take your pick from 40 weekly recipes that suit your lifestyle, from veggie to family-friendly, fit, wholesome, and much more. They make it easy. Recipes are easy to follow. Get mealtime done. I know it's hectic right now. I know a lot of stuff's going on, kids' activities. HelloFresh can help you out. So go to HelloFresh.com slash 50MPW and then use that code 50MPW for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. That's HelloFresh.com slash 50MPW and code 50MPW for 50% off. Again, 15% even the next two months after that as well. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. Give it a try because, look, my diet's not perfect. Not always getting all the vitamins, nutrients, minerals that I need every day. And AG1 can help in that. Makes me feel better, like I'm doing something great for my body as well. Because it empowers the gut for whole body health. It's much more than just a greens power powder. It's all of your key health products in one Covering my nutritional basis for my day literally couldn't be any easier, which is why I trust Athletic Greens. I just mix one small scoop of AG1 with water, drink it first thing in the morning, done. Right there, I break my uh, kind of my fast overnight with AG1. It's a great routine and gets me on with my day. I also like that it costs less than three hours a day. Pretty good if you ask me. It's an effective daily habit with the highest quality source ingredients. It's a win-win. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, Give Athletic Greens. They're giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs for your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash mpw. That's athleticgreens.com slash mpw. Check it out. Fall is here, gentlemen. It's about to get busy during the holidays. Don't let that stop you from sticking to your habits and being the best version of yourself. That's where our friends at Caldera Lab come in. They're the best in the skincare game with an easy routine. Keep your face looking pretty no matter your schedule. Plus, what's better than a gift? of clear skin join the other 100,000 men who trust caldera lab to show your best self and first impression this fall plus it's a great gift caldera lab creates high performance men's skincare products and the regimen leads off their product lineup a twice a day routine transferring your skin the regimen includes three products the clean slate the base layer the good 
The clean slate starts an injured day. It's a face wash that leaves all skin types refreshed. The base layer is your daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin and jumpstart your day full of confidence. And the good is your go-to multifunctional serum at night that helps your skin look tighter and smoother as well as reduce the visibility and wrinkles and fine line. They're the leader of uh, men's skin care. They're made only with top-tier ingredients and clinical trials have found 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger-looking appearance after using Caldera Lab for just a few weeks. One minute morning and night is all it takes to reduce your wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging. And just for our audience, we have an exclusive deal. You're not beating this offer. Use MPW at CalderaLab.com and it's 20% off right now. That's 20% off with code MPW at Caldera, Caldera Lab to make unforgettable first impressions with the best gift this holidays. Again, 20% off at Caldera Lab with code MPW. Did you could you see things going into last season that the Orioles would take a jump that would be able to catapult to that point? I mean, like I said, they just won 82 games or whatever it was, but they were more fun. I mean, Rushman obviously has a you know he just his entire deal is something that picks up teammates. Yeah. I mean, there was there were things that I could see on TV, but I'm just wondering going into the year, what what are you were you noticing there with them? I got to go to spring training and be in uniform. I was lucky enough. Brandon Hyde, the manager, invited me to come work with some of the pitchers for about 10 days. But, you know, the Orioles overachieved last year. And when I, I tell people this all the time, when I got to camp this year with this team, a lot of the same players, but a few veterans, they went and signed one-year contracts. Uh, Kyle Gibson uh, came over and signed a, a one-year contract. And a couple of other guys did too. But it almost felt like this was a validation year for the Orioles this year. Like they wanted to prove to everybody that, Last year was not a fluke. And I'll be honest, I didn't see what potentially could be. I mean, Orioles are at 97 wins right now. They go 500 the rest of the way. They're going to win 100 games. I did not see 100 wins coming. But I did feel like this was a team that was going to compete for a playoff spot. Like They had a real shot of being 85 to 88 wins. I felt like that for this team. I didn't see this coming. So it almost felt like they wanted to go out and prove all the naysayers wrong. to try to say, well, they overachieved. They're going to back up this year. I felt like they were hungry. I think Brandon Hyde deserves a lot of credit for this. Mike Elias, general manager, has built it from the ground floor up from a team that rebuilt five years ago and been trying to build back up again. He's, as you mentioned, Adley Rushman, he's really hit on the draft picks, and that's what it takes. I mean, Gunnar Henderson we got in the same draft as we got. Rushman was the first pick in the first round in, in 19. Henderson was the first pick in the second round uh, from Alabama, and he's become a superstar. He'll win rookie of the year this year, hands down, in the American League. Uh, and so it's a bunch of young, hungry players. And have they overachieved at some point? Sure, they have this year. But that's that's what makes baseball one of the greatest games in the world. I mean, look at it like this. The two best teams in the American League have arguably the two lowest payrolls in the American League. But I think Oakland's the lowest. The Orioles are the second lowest. And Tampa Bay's the third or fourth lowest payroll mm-hmm. in all of baseball. And yet they're the two best teams, the Orioles and the Rays are in baseball right now. So it's one of the few sports where you don't, it does help to have the money. It does help to pay like the Braves do to lock up these young players. That is one part of success. But also go look, the Padres with this giant payroll aren't going to be in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. The Yankees with this giant payroll aren't going to be in the playoffs. The Red Sox aren't going to be in the playoffs. And so money does not value success in baseball because, to me, it is still the most unpredictable of our major sports. We talk about football, baseball, basketball. To me, it's the most unpredictable sport that's out there. I'm making you almost have to pick between kids at this point. One one game, college or pro, what do you want to call? One or the other. You got to pick one or the other, a college baseball game or a pro game. My heart is in the college game. Right. I'll yeah, be yeah, honest yeah. with you. I, my, that's my heart, man. You give me a good SEC game 
that matters. You give me Ole Miss and LSU, LSU, Mississippi State, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. That's where I want to go, man. I want to see, right. I want to see those kids get after it because you know, on Friday nights in the SEC, man, you're watching the equivalent of at least double A baseball, hands down. And with the talent the SEC is putting out year after year now, man, you're seeing some real dudes on the field. So that's what makes it fun for me. When's the last time you shot a basketball? Mm, about three weeks ago. I don't play that okay. much anymore. Uh, but I still get get in the gym and, and, and shoot a few uh, shoot a few shots every now and then, you know. Dale Brown, Dale Brown, I saw Dale Brown a year ago. He goes, "Do you know, you know, Dale's 167 now, you know, but his memory is still <laughs> as good as it ever was." He said, "Do you know who holds the single season record for free throw percentage at LSU?" And I went, "No, Coach, I got no idea." He goes, "You do. You shot 91 percent one year. You and Chris Jackson are tied for the highest." Single season free throw shooting percentage of LSU basketball history. I didn't even know that, you know. And he also said, "Did you know you shot three for four from the three point line that year?" I said, "I did know that, coach, but it was only four shots, you know." But he's still the best. I coach. I talk to coach all the time. He always has these great inspirational, you know, stories for me. And and you know, he's been a big part of me doing what I do now because he's the one that you know. I called him up when I first. Saw, I said, "Coach, I don't know if I can do this or not, man. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is for me." And he said, "Ben." He said, if you work at this like you've worked at everything else in your life, you'll be successful in doing this, you know. And that was 15 years ago, you know. And so Coach Brown's just been a big part of my life. He's a guy that I bump everything off of, you know. And he got me through the most difficult time of my life when I gave up that grand slam my freshman year at LSU. We go to the College World Series, and I'm a hometown kid, grew up 15 minutes from university, and and a ball came out of my hand and we're at the college world series and Mike Bianco's catching and the ball went over the fence for a grand slam walk off home run. And LSU was eliminated from the college world series. And I was an 18 year old kid, man. And I had never failed at anything in my life. I'd been an all state football player, all state basketball player, all state baseball player, won a state championship in high school. Like I'd never failed at anything I'd ever done. And for the first time I got hit right here between the eyes and I had failed on the biggest stage you could fall on, right on ESPN, on live television. And I had to eat that, man. And, and I'll be honest with you, it was the most difficult time of my life because I I questioned whether baseball was for me. Mm-hmm. And I questioned that. And, and uh, I remember Coach Brown picked up the phone. He saw what happened, and he said, Ben, he said, listen, he said, you can feel sorry for yourself or you can pick up the pieces and move on. And Coach Berkman told me the same thing. He said, he said, Ben, if you play the game long enough, these things are going to happen. I was like, yeah, Coach, but it happened to me. I've never failed at anything I've ever done. He said, well, you failed now. And he said, you got two choices. You can sit back and you can look at it and you can say, why me? Or you can pick up the pieces and you can move forward. And I said, you know, and I was, and I was due to ship off to the Alaskan Summer League a week later. And I told Coach Berkman, I said, Coach, I Coach Brown wants me to play basketball, and I can go, and I got a shot to play NBA basketball, and maybe that's what I'm going to do. And he said, no, I don't think that's what you're going to do. He said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to get your butt on an airplane. You're going to fly into Anchorage, Alaska, and you're going to play summer ball is what Mm -hmm. you're going to do. And I was like, Coach, I I just don't know if I can do it or not. So I thought about it. I never left my room, man. Like, I was one of these kids that was always – but I was in a state of depression before there was such thing as maybe depression was going around it. 
my parents wouldn't, you know, I told them I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to eat. I went two or three days. I don't think I did up and drank water. I was just out of my mind, sad. And I finally made my mind up that, okay, I'm, I'm going to go do this and see how it turns out. And Paul Carey from Stanford hit this grand slam off of me. This is where the story gets kind of funny. It wasn't funny at the time, but it is now. So I fly into Anchorage, Alaska, and Steve McFarland, the head coach of the Anchorage Glacier Pilots, picks me up at the airport. And evidently, Coach Bertman had called Coach McFarland and said, listen, we got to get McDonald on the mound as fast as we can. We have got to get this out of his system because he's going through a rough time right now. So McFarland picks me up at the airport, and he goes, by the way, uh, our first game is tomorrow night at home, and you're pitching. I, I said, Say again, Coach. He said, you're pitching the first game tomorrow night. I did not sleep a moment that night. I flew into Anchorage, Alaska. I got with my host family. I didn't sleep a wink. I sweated and laid in bed wondering, what am I doing? Is this really for me or not? And about 40 minutes before the ball game, Steve McFarland comes in. I'm in the clubhouse getting ready to go take my warm-up tosses and go out to the bullpen. And he hands me a folded up sheet of paper like this. It was folded up just like this. And he hands it to me. He sticks it out. And he walks away. And the only thing he says is, is this how you want to be remembered? And he walks off. I said, well, that, that's odd. So I open this piece of paper up. And you know how the coaches exchange lineup cards before the game. They'll exchange one way in advance. They'll exchange another one right at home plate when the game starts. Well, the other coach on the other team that we were playing thought it'd be funny if he filled out a lineup card. It's had one through nine, Paul Carey, Paul Carey, Paul Carey, Paul Carey, <laughs> one through nine. He said, and, and McFarland said, is this how you want to be remembered? And you know how you're kind of sitting on the fence about certain things, and all of a sudden you get that one swift kick in the butt that says, okay, it's your, it's your time. Okay, this is how you want to do it. This is, and I was convinced that I was not going to let one moment in time define who I was as a person or a ball player. And I took that piece of paper and I kept it folded and I stuck it right up in the top of my locker. And that's where I set it. Two hours and 40 minutes later, I had thrown a complete game shutout and struck out 15. And I didn't mean this in a sassy way, but I went and got that. First thing I did after I congratulated my teammates was I went and got that piece of paper and I gave it to the bat boy on our team. I said, please go give this to that coach over there on that other team. You tell him I said, thank you. And I didn't mean it as a smart ass comment. I meant it as that's what I needed. I don't know if it was God's way of making that guy give me that piece of paper and write Paul Carey. Listen. Paul Carey didn't even play in the Alaska yeah, Summer League. Yeah, yeah. He was playing in the Cape Cod League, but he thought it would be funny if he did that. And that was kind of, I tell people, that was my aha moment in time where I, I had failed for the first time. And it was as difficult as anybody's ever failed on a big stage at 18 years old. But I was convinced that, okay, that's not who I am. And I'm not going to let this one moment in time define all the work that I put into this point and what I will continue to do. And it made me work even harder to be the best that I could be. And even beyond your personal failures, that's an LSU program that was still trying to get to the mountaintop. I mean, you've got the state, the team on your shoulders too, because that's not yeah. like it happened in 98 after you'd already won four titles and all right. these other things going on. It's still built. 
That's right. We were building. That was only the second time that LSU had ever been to the College World Series. Only the second time ever. They went in 86, and that was my freshman year in 87. And so, yeah, we were building blocks of trying to build something, you know. And uh, you don't think about those things when you're 18 years old, 19. You just think about the moment, the moment you're in and, and what had happened. And, boy, that was Oof, that was a tough time for me and for LSU because, like I said, I'm a hometown kid. It's not like this is some kid from Wyoming that came and played at LSU. I grew up going. I mean, I got to go face all my buddies at home now. I got to mm-hmm. go face everybody that, hey, that's a guy to do Grand Slam. LSU got walked off. Yeah, that was me. That was me. And at the time, it was, it, man, it was tough. But now I embrace it. I tell people while it was horribly difficult at the time, it was the best thing that ever happened to my athletic career because it taught me about failure and how you can overcome it. If you put it behind you, you continue to work hard. It's not ever going to be easy. I tell kids all the time, failing is not easy. It will wear on you. Like, I mean, my hair was falling out. It wore on me so bad, but it's also what ended up being a really good thing for me. What happened? When did you uh, first meet Bill Jordan? Man, it was like my second year in the big leagues. I think it was 1990. And I got invited by Mike Boddicker who pitched for, Pitched for the Orioles for a while. They pitched for the Red Sox, too, to go to this thing called the, the Buckmaster. The Buckmaster, what was it called? Uh, there in Selma, Alabama, the Buckmaster Convention or whatever it was. It's basically a hunting place where you'd give a clinic and a whole bunch of people showed up. And and uh, and I, I, I go to this thing, and, man, Davey Allison's there, and Wade Boggs is there, Mr. Perfect, the wrestler's there. Bill Jordan's there. And I remember Bill came up to me and he introduced himself, you know, and he goes, we were talking, he goes, Hey man, you, you like to uh, hunt big deer. I was like, who don't like to hunt big deer. And from that, and from that point forward, it's just like, we became, he became like a big brother to me, you know, and me and Bill have stayed in touch since 1990. We, we hunted every, and COVID changed that, but me and Bill had hunted one time a year together every year since 1990 when, when COVID hit. I'd been, we'd been elk hunting. We'd been deer hunting. We'd been everywhere you can go. We've done it and, and had some wonderful times. And uh, we just hit it off, man, for whatever reason. Bill spoke my language. He spoke hunting. And, and you know his love for the outdoors. He loves the outdoors as much as anybody does, like I do. And I just enjoy it. Was, hunting was always my way of detoxing, you know, and, and getting away from the baseball season and pushing away and, just, you know, it, it had to be about killing for me for a long time. Now it's about just enjoying the moment, you know, and, uh, but I love it, man. I, I don't know what I could do. If, if I couldn't go grab a bow and climb up in a tree and go, go bow hunting, I don't know what I'd do, you know? And so uh, Bill's shares the same passion for the outdoors and our families became, you know, his wife, Shannon and Tyler be, uh, have become a big part of our family. We vacation with them a few times over to Disney world and other places, uh, and there's some funny stories in there, but, uh, uh, yeah. And so me and Bill have just always stayed in touch. Of course, we always, you know, he was an SEC guy, played football at Ole Miss. Of course, I played at LSU. So we always go back and forth between, uh, Ole Miss and LSU, which by the way, big game coming up, uh, yeah, in yeah, the near yeah. future in Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. Did you grow up hunting? I mean, was that from when you were young? I mean, is that, is that being grand? Yes. Yes. Like my grandfather took me squirrel hunting when I was, five and six years old my dad took me hunting as well and i don't know man it's just something about being in the woods and i just you know a lot of people feel at home in an office some people feel at home wherever i feel at home in the woods man it's just like it is my i call it my happy place it is my happy place where i can go relax and just be in the woods and i don't miss a day 
just be go out in the woods and go deer hunting, do a little duck hunting. I still do a little bit of squirrel hunting too, but bow hunting is my thing. And that's all I've really done for about 30 years now. And, uh, I just love it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's something I got, it got in my butt. It was difficult for me to do because I was a big basketball player in high school. And if you play basketball in high school, there's not much time for hunting during the fall. So that, that hurt me in a lot of different ways. And then, uh, not to be able to do that. And then playing college basketball hurt too. But once I got into pro ball, man, that's where it, it grabbed a different gear. And everybody said, well, you, you know, you made a little bit of money with your signing bonus. What'd you do? Did you buy fancy this? I said, no, man, I bought, hunting land that's what i bought you know i bought mm-hmm. 180 acres up in mississippi when i was 22 years old man that, that's what i did with, with, with my money and, and bought bought land you know and, and i still own a pretty good chunk there in uh, in mississippi today so that, that that's what i live for is the off season how'd you find the land over there it's only an hour and a half from home mr warren Burgess, okay. who played football at LSU, became a, a land realtor, and I bumped into him when I was a kid at LSU. And I said, Mr. Warren, one day if I make me some money, I, I want you to find me a place where I can go hunting and fishing. That's what I want to do, you know. And where we live in Louisiana, the deer hunting's okay. It's not great, but if you get up around that Natchez, Mississippi area, along that river in there where I am now, there's some really nice deer, you know. And so I went up that part of the country, which I can leave home home and be at my place in Mississippi in an hour and a half. So it's not a bad drive at all. And I get up there and some, some deer heaven for sure. What time are you going to the ballpark tomorrow? How early do you get there? I normally get there about three o'clock, you know, and get my prep work done, fill out my lineup cards and chit chat with the other team. Uh, 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 broadcasters kind of feel get a feel for what their team's doing, you know, and, uh, Play the Nationals starting tomorrow. We got two against the Nationals. They're having an off year, but then we got the Red Sox coming in, and so it's an exciting time in Baltimore. And you know, as, as the Orioles are pushing for that playoff spot, but yeah, I get there about three o'clock every day for a you know a seven oh five game. Well, I appreciate it, Bud. Really, more time than I, I thought I was going to get with you. Love talking to you, and uh, I guess go Orioles to be see if we can get that, that prediction done. Thanks, for but, yeah, man, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pull for the Braves and we're gonna pull for the <laughs> Orioles, and hopefully, I'll see y'all in Atlanta uh, come come fall time for sure. Perfect. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.